Hi everyone, I'm Phoebe. And I'm Yanvo. And welcome to Vine to Glass, where we talk about all things wine. Phoebe and I are going to be talking about how restaurants order wine and who decides what bottles you see, which I think is a really interesting topic that Phoebe, we were chatting about one day sort of casually. And I think we both thought it would just be so interesting to dive into in our podcast. Absolutely. So we, through conversations with each other and many other people have realized that although consumers are always at the mercy of marketing firms to a degree, you still like to think that for the most part, you as the consumer have the most choice and you are ultimately the person who decides what you buy. However, due to the intensely complicated structure of the wine industry and the alcohol, broader alcohol industry in the US, that's not necessarily the case. So listen along and we will tell you more about why. So maybe as a starting point, um, I'm also personally curious about this. Could you explain what the structure of the wine market is? Who are the buyers? Who are the sellers? How does wine get from the winemaker to the customer? Mm -hmm. Yep. So this, first of all, varies largely state by state. So there are certain federal mandates in put in place by the federal government that dictate who the wine has to pass through before it reaches a consumer. So for the most part, let's take a winery in Italy, for example, in order to get their wine to an American store or restaurant, they first have to align with an importer. So an established importer with an import license is an American-based company who is licensed to bring in this wine and represent this winery. Oftentimes, they also function as the marketing arm for these wineries. And they will have their own structure of salespeople, marketers, advertisers, and they're essentially responsible for representing the brand in the United States. But the this importer, which is also referred to as a supplier, so importer-supplier, same thing, they are not allowed to sell direct to restaurants, bars, hotels, clubs. This is a part of the what's called three-tier system mandated by the federal government. And it's, again, with a few exceptions state by state, for the most part, then these importers or suppliers are legally obligated to sell their product to a distributor. And the distributor is, you know, think of all the Amazon Prime trucks that you see rolling around through your neighborhood. They're the ones who have the delivery trucks, they have the delivery infrastructure, they have the massive storage warehouses that are temp controlled. And typically, they represent massive, massive portfolios of wines from all over the world. They often have spirit portfolios as well. And the United States is seeing more and more a structure of distributors that are either massive, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the history of some of those, or they are smaller boutique outfits that established sometime in the last several decades that specialized in one or a couple categories of wine. Then those distributors sell to the restaurant, retailer, bar, club, hotel, etc. 
Oh my God. So lots and lots of players in the mix and lots of stakeholders. Um, does it work the same way globally? Like for example, in if you live in the UK or if you live in France or Canada or Australia, is the model the same more or less globally? Oh my gosh. It gets so complicated in different countries and even, you know, take Canada, for example, they're system changes a lot state by state as well. So somewhere like Quebec, they have significant influence from the church still. And the alcohol importing industry is 100% state mandated. So you have buyers hired by the government who determine when they can bring in new wines. These are government employees who do the tastings that of you know, oh, wow. what? yeah, it's crazy. What is that job even called? That's the <laughs> ideal government job. But for the most part, what we were talking about producer, so winery, wherever the origin is, aligns with an importer or supplier who handles marketing and the import logistics for that winery, who then sells to a distributor who actually distributes the product you know, whether it's across the state or across multiple states to the restaurant, hotel, bar, who then sells it to you. It's such an interesting structure because it's, I mean, it sounds highly, it sounds like a highly fragmented commercial model, unlike many brands, which are able to control their own marketing, their distribution, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like with wine, that is not at all the case. It's basically broken up into bits and pieces along the chain. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, okay, so understand that it is very regulated. Are there also incentives at each step along the way? First of all, a great point that you have to wonder why you would mandate such a complicated system of distribution for any industry. I mean, can you imagine the, think of the massive tech companies today or other CPG products that are CPG makers who are vertically integrated A to Z. I mean, that's nearly impossible for wineries to do that in the United States. And, you know, this goes way back into prohibition era of the United States. And when the United States was coming out of prohibition, there were a lot of different incentives for basically those who had connections or those who had influence were able to make a lot of the rules in this new world of selling alcohol legally. And during prohibition, the church was the only place where wine was really legally allowed. And the church aligned with a few wineries and different producers who had this permit that allowed them to continue making alcohol during prohibition. And so there are a few wineries in Napa today who have been, you know, who hail themselves as the longest continuously running winery in Napa or something like this, because they were one of the few who was given these you know, this permit to operate during prohibition. And wow. Right. How did the church choose which wineries to keep open? 
I don't know exactly the answer to that. I haven't seen that recorded anywhere. I would assume it sounds like it was some combination of proximity to the church as well as personal affiliation. So coming out of that period, you know, wineries that had been shut down during Prohibition tried to stay afloat in one way or another and, you know, maybe shut their doors for a little while, but then were able to reopen post-Prohibition. And, you know, now we start talking about nearing the Great Depression era of the United States. And in this time, the role of the government was to get its people out of a depression. And the one of the best ways of doing that was creating jobs, right? So we had all of these initiatives all over the country to rebuild infrastructure and, you know, create all these state-sponsored jobs. And my interpretation of part of the system that has been put in place in alcohol distribution is that it is purely job creation, really. I mean, it's pretty unnecessary to mandate the separation between an importer and a distributor. Why wouldn't you just allow an importer to also be a distributor? And in certain states, there is more flexibility there because the states have more autonomy to mandate exactly how many layers of separation they want between consumer and product origin. But at the end of the day, it still has, even if you know, it's still made very, very difficult for companies to be able to do that because, you know, overhead is so costly. There are so many different licenses involved in doing this. And in order to make any complicated business worthwhile, you have to be able to do it at a certain scale. But in order to scale in the wine industry, that means being able to operate in multiple states. And that is incredibly difficult because each state is so different. Each state, the laws change, the types of licenses change. I mean, it's, it is the biggest mess, I think. And now that we're in 2020 with, you know, we've had the internet for about 30 years, (laughs) we should be modernizing at a much faster rate, but we just haven't been because in addition to job creation, which is positive, each layer of this distribution chant of this distribution system is taxed by the government. So <laughs> government is pulling in some nice tax revenue from each of these companies all on the same product. Literally at each stage of the process. So as it goes from the producer to the importer to the distributor, and I guess also the like to the both the venue that buys it, which sells it to people like you and me. Right. Wow. Yeah. Right. I mean, and we have this image of, you know, you buy a $150 bottle of wine off a list at a restaurant and you think, wow, you know, that's a significant amount of money to spend on a bottle of liquid that will be gone and in your bed in about an hour's time. And you think, okay, this must be some of the finest, finest wine available. And for the most part, it probably is. But when you start thinking about where that wine came from and the layers that it had to go through to get to you, you can start breaking down the price tag that you see and start to think, maybe you don't want to think about this. So I apologize if you you don't want to stop listening now because it might make you kind of depressed. But yeah, you start to realize the margins that go into every single layer that 
was state mandated in order for you to open that bottle of wine. Wow. So, I mean, long story short, huge markups, lots of tax. And is that why I have to ask this question? So I was, you know, I'm looking at our notes that we wrote together to prepare for this. Well, that mostly you wrote, but I saw in the notes, of course, that under, you know, why is this so complicated? You listed amongst other things, the church outlaws, but you listed expensive twice. Is this why? Yeah, in part. So, you know, again, back then when the U.S. was coming out of prohibition, you had to have capital to be able to obtain, a, you know, a, obtain these new permits that were now mandated by the country to be able to produce alcohol. You have to have a permit to be able to sell alcohol. You have to have a permit to, you know, and each of those permits gives you the license to produce up to a certain amount. So it's not like a winery gets a permit to produce and they're good to go. The permits that the county of Napa gives to each different winery or distillery as well is strictly associated with a production level. So wineries will be allocated production of 500,000 gallons in a given year, and they are not allowed to produce more than that. So long story short, you you needed capital to be able to properly run your business now. And, and in order to stay afloat more so than, or, you know, and survive the threats from the outlaws who continued to make hooch and bathtub juice that was more widely available to the average consumer, it w- it's kind of one of those things where you need to spend a lot of money to make money. And I, you know, it seemed, especially in those early days, that that was certainly true for the producers who wanted to do this legally. And that's even more true now, because when I look at even just running a winery, so winery operations, the overhead of a winery is so insanely high. You know, the joke about Napa Valley is, you know, how do you become a millionaire in the wine industry is start with two, two million. And essentially (laughs) acknowledging how difficult it is to make money. (laughs) I'm literally, you can think about me with a little speech bubble coming out of my head thinking two of what? (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, I, I think, don't really realize that, right? And so you go to Napa maybe and you have this wonderful trip and you sit down at a winery and you look at the tasting menu and at the bottom of the tasting menu, it says tastings are $120 per person. (laughs) (laughs) It's reasonable for you to have a mild degree of shock when you read that. But when you think about, you know, a few years ago, the price per acre of land in Napa Valley with nothing on it, just land, no vines, no property, was $100,000 an acre. That's, I mean, talk about a barrier to entry for an industry. And that's not even the amount of money that goes into planting vines to building your infrastructure, whatever, you know, housing, buildings, winery facilities you want. And then you have 
incredibly expensive machinery on top of that. And if you want to be a modern winery, you know, the, the opportunities for you to do that and now try to implement some level of tech into your winemaking facility is, is great. There are more options than there have ever been, but they are still very expensive. And, and then you talk about barrels, you know, a good French oak barrel is about $900 a pop. And you, is that right? Yeah. And you use these once. Oh my God. That's so expensive. By the way, were you saying earlier that it was French government authorities that went and tasted wine? Yeah, in Quebec. Oh, in Quebec. Okay, well, you know, they're obviously heavy French influence. That is probably the most stereotypical government job that I can think of in like in a Francophile sort of. So true. So true. Or a Francophone country. But yeah, so going back to the barrels. So then you have barrels on top of that, which if you're a winery that uses high quality French oak barrels, for example, those run anywhere from 900 to $3,500 a pop. And that is still crazy expensive. It is. And they buy those every year, right? And maybe, maybe they buy 50 per year, maybe they buy a thousand per year. So the, the renewable overhead of a winery is is unbelievable. And, you know, at the crux of all this, don't forget, it's an agricultural product. So you're at the mercy of mother nature. You have wildfires if you're in California or Australia. You have hail if you're in Burgundy. I mean, the the amount of challenges that these places have to deal with and the unpredictability of the end product is such a crazy risk when you really start to think about it that it's one of the reasons why I I will always have immense respect for the persistence of winery owners and winemakers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just crazy to hear these figures that you're sharing and, you know, understanding just how fragmented the value chain, for lack of a better term, in the wine industry is and how it's literally taxed at every step along the way so that every stakeholder is taxed separately, as you said, on the very same product. And actually, can we pivot the discussion to talk a little bit about how the wine actually comes to, like, how does that wine actually arrive at the restaurant? Who chooses the wine? Who influences the decision? How does that all work? Yeah. Yeah. So that's arguably the most important point here. And you wonder as a consumer, when you walk into a store, why are you seeing the labels that you're seeing? And sometimes for me, I always find myself thinking, why is it so hard to find this one bottle or this one producer that I want? And when you attach the idea that each of those layers we just talked about has its own gatekeeper and has its own decision maker or set of decision makers, you realize how cutthroat and ruthless this industry can be and how difficult it is for, especially for international wineries from, you know, anywhere other than America, how difficult it is for them to get here. So, you know, starting at the beginning, you have a winery again, let's take the winery in Italy. They may make a connection to an importer in the United States. They meet with the 
probably COO or the marketing team or the ownership team, if they can get the time of day from the importer, then they'll sit down, have a tasting, taste through their products, send through marketing materials, basically give a presentation on the winery and you know, hopefully successfully argue why their winery would be successful in the United States and the you know that ownership team or C-level team at the importer, whoever it may be, tastes the wines, looks at the whole story, determines whether or not a there's a quality level that is acceptable that they're willing to you know risk their name on and risk their business investment on, and then you have the the concern for is there even a demand for this category of wine here right now? Will we even be able to sell it? And if we can, how much of an investment of our own resources is that going to take? So let's say that the importer decides, yes. Okay. So now the importer has their distributor partners and most importers operate in multiple states. And sometimes they have the same parent distributor in each of those states, but other times they have different distributor companies in each one of those states. So they have to make this presentation to sometimes or one group of head cheese who will make that approval for all of the states that the distributor operates in, or they'll have to make the presentation several times to their distributor in each state. And the distributor goes through the same process. They taste the wines, they look at the story, they look at demand in the market, they look at the price structure and you know, see whether or not it fits in their portfolio, see whether or not they would be cannibalizing something already in their portfolio by bringing on this producer. You, know, you want to be conscientious of whether or not it's a trendy product or it's a product with potential or an, you know, an emerging category. And then even when, even once the distributor approves it, let's say they approve it and they agree to bring it on, the distributor management has the task then of convincing the distributor sales reps. You might think that, oh, okay, well, sales reps are hired by a company to do a certain job. So they are obligated to sell whatever is in their company's portfolio. And that would be reasonable, but that is not always the case in alcohol distributors because of a variety of reasons. But essentially, most of these portfolios are so big that for the average distributor sales rep, you have so many options of things to sell that as long as you're hitting a certain baseline of mandatory products or a mandatory revenue amount, you'll be fine and you don't necessarily have to sell everything that might be on your quota sheet that month, for example. And this is where you get into having to convince each and every distributor sales rep pretty much. And in my experience, that can be incredibly difficult because oftentimes these are unionized jobs. So folks have been in them for a very long time. They have a lovable but stubborn and frustrating mindset of, what they do and don't have to do. They, you know, maybe have a, an affinity for certain accounts or f- certain producers and they, they don't, they decide they don't want to sell this new brand because it is cannibalizing their existing business with the, this other winery that they happen to have a close relationship with. I mean, it's the fact that wine is such a relationship driven business is one of the things that I love about it. And that makes it so, so human and so endearing, but it also 
crosses over a line of professionalism pretty frequently. And that is another significant challenge for wineries. What can a winery do? So uh, what you've just described are at least three decisions that happen downstream of the meeting between the winery and the importer. Does the winery have any means of influencing the downstream decisions with the distributors, with the salespeople, etc.? So in a couple of different ways, in theory, if the distributor leadership team gives the approval, then the wineries will often come to meetings with the distributor sales force and give a presentation about the winery. They'll, you know, hopefully be likable. They'll convince everyone. And then of course you, you were talking about incentives earlier and there are certainly incentives attached at every level. So, and this goes back to the part of why it's so expensive in order to even get your wine adopted or approved by the distributor sales reps, you need incentives. And there are so many successful and wealthy wine companies operating in the States today who run the show of incentives and really contribute to a significant amount of income for these sales reps. So, you know, say you're a new winery and you want a successful first couple of months. So you design an incentive structure for sales reps if they sell 10 cases, 20 cases, 30, 40, 50 of your product in a given month. And if they sell each at each tier, they earn a different number of dollars per case or something like that. And when you multiply that across, say, 30 sales reps in a division, multiply by a couple of divisions or distributor arms within one state. And then you multiply that by however many states you may be operating in. Doing business is so expensive and you haven't even sold your wine yet. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, so the, for lack of a better word, the whims of an individual salesperson actually influence the bottle of wine that arrives at your table at the end of the day. Because if they don't want to take it forward, then it's, well, then it's not taken forward. What about after the salesperson has decided, okay, they want to take a certain wine forward, who are they then convincing to buy the wine? Right. So then there are still more layers of approval necessary. The sales rep takes it to their account. So their restaurant, bar, club, hotel, who they work with that's on their account list at their company. And they'll meet with the buyer of that account. So at a restaurant, it's sometimes the GM, sometimes the sommelier. At a retailer, it's, you know, maybe it's one buyer for the whole category of wine, or oftentimes they'll split the regions, uh, wine producing regions in the world, and you'll have a buyer responsible for each region. So the sales rep conducts a presentation, does a tasting for these buyers, and the buyer decides whether or not, you know, based on the same criteria, it fits in their set. So whether it's a good price point for them, whether it's an origin that they feel like they can sell, whether it's something that they think their consumers have any interest in. And this is another really sticky level of relationship building because 
the better relationship you have as a sales rep with your account, obviously, the more likely they are to buy things from you, whether or not they want it. And in this situation, you often see accounts doing favors for their sales reps. And sometimes the accounts are paid back for that favor in different ways. And sometimes it's just, you know, purely based on how close your relationship is. And that also varies a lot based on how the account wants to do business. And sometimes you have a GM who is responsible for the wine program, the spirits program, overseeing the bottom line, and they they have a tremendous amount of responsibility and not enough time to get all of those things done. So they will essentially let the sales rep more or less design their wine program. And so sometimes, depending on how frequently the account changes their program, as in changes the wines on the list, that list could really reflect a lot of the salesperson's quota items for that month or that quarter. And it isn't necessarily reflective of the best quality wines or what you may think you want to see and what you think represents a good diversity of offerings from the world. How do I avoid such wine lists? I mean, that's clearly <laughs> yeah. immediately where my mind went. And maybe that wasn't the most diplomatic way to say it. But you know what I mean. It's a good question, though. And I think it's a difficult one because if you are at an account or a restaurant that changes their list frequently, you know, it's it's just impossible to know people's motives unless they tell you flat out, which I think few people will. But I always feel like whenever I'm at a restaurant with a lot of big names on the wine list, a lot of really well-known names that either receive a lot of press or that you always see in the grocery store, that always makes me a little bit suspicious because oftentimes they're great wines and they are wineries that deserve that press. And there's a reason why they've become so popular. But at the same time, it is the result of being a part of a wealthy company who has money to spend on marketing and incentives for sales reps, because sales reps will prioritize oftentimes whoever they can make most money off of. So big names is a big tip off to me. I I love seeing wine lists that have really obscure wines that I've never heard of before. And in big cities all over the country, and certainly in London as well, you see more and more restaurants making an effort to create a unique wine program that will differentiate them from everyone else. That is so interesting. I've never thought about it that way before, where you know the brand names would be a little red flag in a sense. Yeah. And it's, you know, I don't want to take away from the success of those big brand names, because like I said, there is a, for the most part, there's a reason why they got to that stage in the first place. However, as time passes and, you know, it becomes kind of a chicken and the egg situation of, well, were they making good wine first? And that's how they became so popular. And had all of this, all these resources to spend on building the brand? Or did they start with a lot of money? And maybe the wine isn't necessarily that good, but there are just tons of resources pumped behind building this brand. And that's why you see it everywhere. So in that case, it's, I always really encourage people to decide for yourself, 
you know, don't, you can't necessarily listen to the Psalm or marketing materials or, you know, what you see in the magazine, because in addition to those incentives we talked about at the distributor, there are sometimes incentives for the restaurant employees as well. So either the importer slash supplier or the distributor can set up incentives on the side for the sommelier. Is that true? It is. And it's it has varying layers of legality, illegality, depending on what state you're in and depending on who does it and depending on the amount of money associated with the incentive. But it definitely happens. And it's the kind of thing where when you ask a psalm for a recommendation, it might be the kind of thing where <laughs> the offerings that they bring to you are chosen for a reason. Maybe it's because they really believe in the wine, or maybe it's because they have an incentive behind one of the options. And if they sell a certain amount, then they get a bonus or something from, from the importer. Honestly, it's so fascinating to hear you talk about this. I'm just in my mind thinking about comparable setups in other industries. And I I can't think of any, right? Like if you think of the pharmaceuticals industry where the pharmaceuticals company is manufacturing a drug, then they have distributors that are selling to, or they have a sales force that is selling to doctors. It is obviously illegal for the salesperson to incentivize the doctor to buy their drug. And there are all sorts of rules around how you can't do that and to prevent that from happening. Whereas it seems very much the norm in in wine, in such a regulated industry, it seems the incentive structure is really unregulated and set up in such a way where everyone has to pay a lot of, well, you know, I'm not a tax expert, but it, it does seem crazy that the same products is taxed multiple times along the way. Right. And it's one of those things that you can find yourself becoming infuriated by if you think about it too much and you realize how powerless you feel in certain scenarios when it comes to picking wine. But again, it's, you know, it's like anything else. Don't make a political decision without doing your own research. Don't make a decision about wine without doing your homework. Like it's (laughs) across the board. And that also makes me think back to a discussion we had on another podcast when I think it was in our How to Get Started episode where we were talking about what kind of questions are interesting to ask a sommelier. And you had this great suggestion to ask the psalm, what has they been drinking recently that they like instead of asking, you know, I think a really common question is, you know, oh, what sh- what do you think I should order? What do you think is good? And it sounds like that is actually not a good question to ask at all. Right. Again, I don't want everyone to think that that's the case for every restaurant you go in. And now with every psalm you look at, you're going to be suspicious because certainly, especially among high-end restaurants, the psalms and the whole you know, operational team have an incredible amount of pride and integrity around what experience and what products they bring to the consumer. So at restaurants like that, it is, it's not very common, but yeah, absolutely. I I think the most, one of the best ways to get an actually honest answer is by asking them genuinely, what do they like or what have they enjoyed drinking recently? Not, you know, not telling them to assign something 
to you instead. Yeah. And I have another question for you. So oftentimes, you know, when you open the wine list at a restaurant, you obviously hear about the markups that are applied. And now I, I certainly have a better understanding of, of why there is that markup. But all things considered, how do you decide whether something is worth it to drink at a restaurant? Like, how do you decide what things you might drink at home versus what you might order with you know, dinner on a night out? That's a tough one. And it, I guess an easy parameter to start with is money. And so your budget, looking at how much you want to spend. And I do think that in the production side of things, so at wineries and let's take retail, for example. So retailers, depending on their model and who they are, will add anywhere from, you know, 11 or 12% up to 30% on a bottle of wine when they purchase it from the distributor. And I like to think that from the wines that I've tasted among a bunch of different price points, that the 18 to $35 range of wines, and this is retail price we're talking, so what you would see on the shelf at at wherever you buy your wine, that's really a sweet spot, I think, for quality to price ratio. Obviously, there are varying factors like where it's from, you know, who makes it, how much are they making, what the varietal is, because there are so many things that go into determining the price of different varietals. But Generally, I find that that is a good quality price range to work within. And then a restaurant then takes typically more like a 300% markup on their wines. So whatever price they purchase the wine from the distributor at, they multiply usually by three. And that is the bottle price on the list. So most restaurants make make a lot more of their money on booze than they do on food, but it's just a part of the business model. And that's if that's what's necessary for us to be able to taste these delicious creations that they make, then we can make exceptions. I think typically that like eighty to ninety dollar, up to like one hundred and twenty dollar range on a list at a restaurant usually means good quality. Mm, interesting. Restaurants are also a great place to look for those unknown labels and unknown brands um, because, again, if there isn't a tremendous amount of competition or demand around a winery yet, then they probably won't be making marketing-driven price hikes. So you won't be seeing as much price competition around that bottle and therefore you're more likely to get a good deal. And that I think that holds true for more obscure production regions too. Like there's plenty of great wine from Croatia and Slovenia, and you will get a much better deal on very high-end Croatian wine than you will on very high-end Napa wine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's actually such a good point. Like I definitely feel like restaurants for me are a really sometimes unique, but always delightful way to try new things. Or, you know, even if it's something slightly more obscure that it's hard to buy as a consumer from retail, you know, sometimes on a restaurant wine list, you can find that bottle. And for me personally, like that's when I feel like it's 
absolutely worthwhile to have that bottle with dinner because maybe you can't find it otherwise in in the UK or in this particular location, wherever it might be. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I do find oftentimes that wineries or rather restaurants will take good care to try to represent wine labels that you can't find at the grocery store, right? Because consumers want an experience that isn't necessarily so easily replicated at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think that actually takes us through most of our topics. Yeah. No, I, I guess so. I was just thinking about that. I think that covers it. Do you have any parting thoughts? We've uncovered a lot of the wine industry's operations here and it's, like I said earlier, it can be very frustrating if you think about it, but I would just go back to the point of do your homework, do your research and think for yourself, make your own decision. And the more information you arm yourself with, the better off you'll be. And hopefully now you'll go into your next wine purchasing experience with a little bit more than you had last time. I love that. I also want to close by sharing a quote with you that I read earlier today from the 67 Pall Mall email distro, which says, when wine goes in, wisdom comes out. (laughs) (laughs) Right they are. (laughs) So on that note, see you guys next time. Thanks for joining. Talk to you soon. 